0: Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary U Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, This podcast is for you. Welcome to the third episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Michael Kitsis, who's a financial planner, speaker, blogger, educator, and entrepreneur. He's most well known in the wealth management and financial advisory industry, where he's viewed as the expert's expert. And the amount of content he's created over the years is absolutely astounding. He's done research on safe withdrawal rates, asset allocation glide paths in retirement, and determining sustainable retirement income based on market valuation, which has been cited by publications such as The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Money Magazine. His blog, The Nerd's Eye View, has over 40,000 subscribers. He's host of two podcasts, including the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, which is by far the most popular podcast in the financial advisory industry. He also co founded XY Planning Network, which is the leading organization of fee only financial advisors who are focused on working with Generation X and Generation Y clients, now with over 1,300 members. And he's a co founder of AdvicePay, which is the leading fee payment processing platform that provides advisors with a compliant way to bill for one time and ongoing financial planning engagements on a fee for service or subscription basis. And he recently became head of planning strategy at Buckingham Wealth Partners, one of the largest registered investment advisors in the United States. Michael and I have known each other for over 15 years, and like many others in the industry, I've greatly benefited from his advice, his insights, and his technical guidance. In fact, being both a regular listener and a guest on his podcast is what helped inspire me to launch the Fiduciary U podcast. A big reason why I wanted to have him on the show is to broaden his exposure to the ERISA world because I think his ideas are so valuable. On today's episode, Michael and I spend time discussing the importance of financial stress, financial wellness, and financial planning, especially within the workplace. We talk about how and why employers should care about helping their employees improve their financial health and why the 401k industry might be the best mechanism to deliver financial planning to the masses. We discuss how The financial planning needs of the typical American are different from the traditional high net worth client and how service models are evolving to meet these needs, as well as how technology enables fee-for-service planning engagements. We cover the fascinating research he's done on rising equity glide paths in retirement, which flies in the face of the traditional approach the retirement industry takes when it comes to target date funds. And be sure to listen to the end where Michael shares his thoughts on how plan sponsors and employers should think about employee financial wellness as an investment in their business with real ROI based on business metrics and not just in expense, as well as his single best piece of advice for making of Fiduciary smarter. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy the third episode of the Fiduciary U podcast with Michael Kitsis. All right, Michael Kitsis. Welcome to the Fiduciary U podcast, where we focus on making ERISA Fiduciary smarter. I'm so happy to have you here today. I can't wait for listeners to hear all the things you have to say. And we're going to have a pretty wide ranging conversation today about things like financial planning and wellness and everything from retirement income and so on and so forth. So thanks for being here.
1: Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Congratulations on getting underway with the new podcast. I know we're just a couple episodes in that I get to hop in. So welcome to the podcasting world. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered to get to be one of the early guests. So everybody years from now who goes back and listens to this successful podcast, we get to hear this early episode with us.
0: Yeah, I'm, I actually feel a lot of pressure today since you know your podcast is like the most popular one in the financial services industry. So I, I, uh, I'm actually a little nervous. I think I'm sweating here. I hope I do a good job.
1: I'm sure you'll be fine. You know your world better than I am. I am your guest in your house today.
0: Awesome. Well, so let's kind of start talking about, and, and I'd love to talk about just financial planning in general and with your background and all the different things that you're doing and have done over the years um, you know, you are the expert's expert, kind of in the industry from a, a planning standpoint, and you know, planning is something that has been a great focus within kind of the private client, retail, traditional wealth management world. Not something that's been a major focus in the ERISA world. That being said, over the past few years, this kind of concept or this 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 um, phrase, financial wellness, has become really popular. Unfortunately even though it's a buzzword, it's really hard to define and pin down. Mm-hmm. So, maybe let's start. Yes, when you hear financial wellness, what comes to mind for you and how would you differentiate that from maybe financial well-being or financial planning as well?
1: Well, it's funny. So, I, you know, I have to admit, when I when I think about financial wellness, like my head goes to a financial well-being model, sort of a, a a holistic look at our well-being from a from a wellness lens. I guess strictly speaking, like well-being is how we're doing and wellness is what we're trying to do to improve our how we're doing. You know, to me, the nature of of financial wellness, I I, I think it speaks to the holistic nature of just all the different pieces of what happens in our financial lives. You know, our industry, just the roots of our financial services industry, we're we're an industry of a zillion different products that are regulated by all the different product channels. And so insurance people talk about insurance stuff and investment people talk about investment stuff and people from the 401k world talk about 401k stuff. And I feel like the whole nature of the financial planning movement in general has been like, Let's unify the channels and say we got to look at a whole person and all the domains of their financial life because it's not just about any one of those, but literally how they fit together. And I guess even in that context, I'd kind of think of financial planning as the verb about crafting this wellness journey, wellness being the actions of trying to improve where we stand and well-being being the overall measure of just how are we doing in our our financial selves and our financial whole. Just recognizing all the different pieces that go into that, right? Like, there's what's going on in my retirement accounts. There's what's going on in all my investment accounts. There's what's going on in my bank account and my cash flow and budgeting. Right? Most people, at the end of the day, live and die not by what's in their retirement account. It's what's in their bank accounts and their ability to have their inflows at least cover their outflows every month. We have all sorts of challenges that come with the risks that impact our cash flow, the opportunities in our career to lift our cash flow and income, the trade-offs that we make when our income goes up about whether we're going to save it or whether we're consume it more. And if we're going to consume it, are we going to do it in a one-time purchase or something that lifts our lifestyle or something where we borrow and take on debt, which burdens our earning power in the future? So we got to earn that out. So many different choices and trade-offs that tie into all the different pieces that ultimately say... The end of the day, am I am I comfortable with my financial state of health? When at the end of the day, if if I am, I can go and be my productive self in the world. And when I'm not, it's actually really hard to be productive with almost anything else because you know we get so focused and obsessed. Maybe obsessed is the wrong word because that like implies to me some irrationality. Like just we get focused on our financial challenges when we face financial challenges because. The modern world we live in today, like you know, money is subsistence level stuff. Like it's a survival thing at this point. Like in the past, if I didn't have food, clothing, and shelter, like I couldn't survive because I was exposed to the elements. Now, if I don't have money, I can't get those things and protect myself from the elements. So, like if you can't if you can't handle money issues, you can't survive and function in modern society. And so those who are challenged financially and stressed financially it ripples into everything else which is both bad for our personal well-being and certainly in the context of you know, the reality of 401k plans in the workplace like your financially stressed employee is your non-productive employee your high turnover employees your absenteeism employees like all sorts of ripple effects that come that are are way beyond just do we have a You know a four hundred and one k plan with prudent investment choices, (laughs) right? Not that that doesn't matter, but like the stuff that ultimately impacts employee wellness goes way beyond only that only that retirement plan layer.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. And you know, when you 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 mentioned wellness and well being. Part of the way I think about wellness is really the steps. It's more kind of process focused and action focused, right? The steps that you're taking to improve your overall financial health. Whereas financial well being is more of kind of an emotional state that you're in. So, for instance, you know, if I pay off my credit cards every month, then. I'm likely to have a higher level of financial well-being because I'm not going to be worried about my short-term debt, and because I'm taking those kind of healthy actions, if you will. But you bring up a really good point. There's a, the, a financial wellness and financial wellness solutions have have really kind of exploded within the you know within the retirement industry because for most people, you know, m- most Americans don't actually have access to a financial advisor. I would say in general, most what people have access to, and, and there's still a coverage issue within the 401k industry, but most most Americans, right, they have some type of workplace retirement plan. And so wellness, uh, again, that word has kind of been hijacked in some ways within the industry, yep. and it's really hard to define. What is it? Is it just education? You know, it used to be for for 20 or 30 years, a lot of the education was focused on how do you teach people to be better investors talk about asset allocation and risk and return. And, you know, none of these things that actually moved the needle and where the the, the messaging is now gone is more around like budgeting and debt management and saving and so on and so forth. Uh, but you bring up a really good point, I think, which is, and, and our research bears this out, is that when employees are stressed, and by our research, we, we, we did a study last year where we surveyed almost 1,900 employees across our, our wow. client base. Um, we had about 50,000 employees. And so we got really good a really good response rate. But 45% of people said that they were financially stressed and on a regular basis. And that had a huge impact, like you said, on their alignment and on their engagement and on their productivity, but also their work products. People who were stressed were 17 times more likely to feel like that stress had impacted their work quality. So as companies, it makes sense to invest in in financial wellness
1: your employees that have you know financial and debt issues i mean they're you know, they're not focused at work because they're distracted worrying about their debt issues they're not focused right. at work because their debt collectors might literally try and be contacting them at right. work or, or coming to find them at work or trying to garnish their wages at work and so workplace becomes gobbled up in in debt and financial issues, you know, to me, there's all sorts of spillover effects that start cropping up into the workplace, both because that's where we spend the bulk of our time while we're worried and stressed about whatever money issues are going on in our lives. And at the end of the day, like if my money issue is fundamentally, I don't have enough coming in to handle what's going out, what's going out. You know, the primary focal point is work is where I hopefully make more stuff come in. Right. So, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm really unhappy with my job and I want a raise and a promotion now. it's like, well, no, actually, I'm totally fine with my job, but I'm really stressed at home. And so I'm going to take it out at work by saying, I really need this raise and I need this promotion right now. And we start building up the stuff in our head because it's not actually an employee engagement or management issue. It's a home financial wellness issue that's showing up in the workplace. And then when you can't meet that person's financial needs, Then they end up leaving and taking a job somewhere else and searching and trying to get more dollars, more promotions and something else. And so this spills over into turnover and other issues, all stemming from, no, they really just needed someone to help them make a couple of good financial decisions so they didn't get stuck in debt or could work out of it. And then we wouldn't have lost that employee for that promotion we couldn't give them that they didn't actually really want. They just needed it because there was a financial stressor that they had to solve for.
0: Right. Right. And this was all like, this was pre-COVID-19. I can only imagine we're getting ready to embark on kind of the, the second version or, or uh, your survey. I can only imagine what that stress level must be like now. You know, one of the things I think as an industry, and I'd love your insights on this, that, you know, the industry has been able to deliver financial planning advice, comprehensive advice, really to kind of that high net worth segment. And there's lots of, you know, uh, you now you know work with at at, at Buckingham Wealth Partners, a, a really high end registered investment advisor. You know yep. I think uh, you know our firm and a similar. There's a lot of really good firms out there, but a lot of those firms are not equipped really to come down market. You know most high end firms are focused on higher net worth people who have assets and and can kind of pay higher fees. And so I, I think in a lot of ways. The industry has struggled to deliver really good, capable, comprehensive financial planning to the masses. Yep. Um, I'd, I'd be interested. why do you think that is and, and how are you seeing some things you know evolve? I know at XY Planning Network, which is one of the companies that you co-founded, is really you know aimed at trying to address some of those issues, but maybe talk a little bit about why we haven't been able to deliver comprehensive financial planning to the masses in a cost-effective actionable, effective way?
1: So, so I think ultimately there's two things that drive the blocking point for the industry and, and so struggling to expand the reach of financial advice. The, the first, that's kind of a reality for any advisor in the business, but we don't often really talk about it outside of the business. It's really hard to get a client. Like it's really hard. To get a client, you. We did a study last year across nearly a thousand advisors, looking at their marketing and business development practices, and said, like, how much money do you spend on marketing, a marketing team, on advertising? How much of your time do you spend marketing? Because in the advisor world, as you know, a lot of our marketing is networking meetings and 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 events and other ways that we meet and get introduced to people in the first place, not just the like. I ran an advertising campaign. There's a lot of right. time-intensive stuff in there as well. And so we added up, like, what's the cost of all the time? What's the cost of all the dollars? What's the cost of all the hard advertising costs? How many clients do people get? Now, you know, across a1,000 advisors, this was like a zillion new clients that people had taken on board. And when we added it all up and said, what do people spend in total? how many clients do they get in total? what we found is the average advisor has a client acquisition cost of about 3,300 dollars per client. Wow. $3,300 per client. You know, spent a couple hundred bucks on marketing, spent $1,000 on this event, spent 17 hours of my time at all these networking meetings and a lunch and a follow-up lunch to develop the relationship with the attorney who then ultimately gave me the referral. And I get to meet with them three referrals before one of them worked out. Like you put all that together. Aggregate cost $3,300 in time and staff and labor costs to get a client. So, when it costs you $3,300 to get a client before you do dollar $1 of work right, to actually get paid for what you do for them, it's really hard to make any money on, quote unquote, down market clients, otherwise known as like the average American, but relative to our industry, a down market client. And that's why I think it's no coincidence that you see advisory firms so often, once they start to get any level of ongoing growth and traction... You start seeing them create minimums of two or three hundred thousand dollars per client. Because that's base, I don't think we always do the math, but that's about what it comes down to. Two or three thousand hundred excuse me, a two or three hundred thousand dollar minimum, a typical advisory fees is a three 3000 thousand dollar. Which pretty much covers the cost of the time right. it takes to get the client. Right. So until we figure out how to bring client acquisition costs down, which frankly is heavily self-imposed. Our industry is so low trust, we barely rank above Congress and Edelman Trust surveys most years. And so, yeah, you know, when you get a really low trust industry, you have to work your butt off one advisor at a time to prove that you're trustworthy, particularly since, notwithstanding our podcast name here, like most people who wear the advisor label are not fiduciaries, literally don't have that obligation. So, right. no kidding, we have trust problems with the public. You know, the more we that come we, by, get, we, we come by, we
0: come by those, those trusted. Businesses. We come by those trust issues, honestly, as an industry. In a lot of cases, yes, unfortunately, the behavior that has taken place over the years.
1: But the lower the trust gets, you know, like two things happen: it gets harder to serve the masses because it gets so expensive to get a client. And if you are going to serve the masses, there's only way that you make one. There's only the one way that you make enough money off of them: you sell them a really crappy, high cost product that makes you a ton of money. Right. And and that's right. largely what our industry has done, particularly in the mass market. So. So there's really two issues I think that have blocked us from expanding access. Number one is this problem that it's so hard to get a client. This is a heavily self-inflicted wound because of the trust issues, at least our industry and the aggregate has brought on ourselves. I think you know some of us on the fiduciary advocacy side are trying to change that, but that's not where the industry is in the aggregate. You know, it's why you run the fiduciary podcast, it's why our business. You know, sued the SEC over regulation best interest for not being a fiduciary standard. We're trying to lift the bar for ourselves, but it's slow because there's a lot of self interest from product firms to not see that bar get lifted. the The second issue at the end of the day is that because advice historically has been so driven by the the various industry product channels, like the math gets really simple if your business is primarily driven by assets under management you give advice with people who have assets to manage <laughs> and right. if you just look at the market sizing research of like you know aggregate in the US there's about 120 million households 300 plus million people but many of them are you know families couples with children and such like 300 plus million people 120 million household units only about a third of those have at least $100,000 of investable assets outside of their primary residence otherwise known as you know prospects for advisors right so if we start with an assets under management based model you by definition have eliminated like 70% of the marketplace before we've even started the exercise then we get through whose money is available to manage. They can move it from wherever it is. They're willing to delegate it to an advisor.
0: It might, it might be in a 401k plan, plan where-
1: And, and that's why I think our you, industry you has spent sell-out. so long focusing Floiling on over. retirement rollovers because the moment you retire and roll over, like, it's like this great unleashing of the assets as a new business opportunity. So our industry gloms onto rollovers.
0: All money the- in motion is what they called it when I started in, in the industry, money in motion.
1: Money in motion. And so all of that builds up to, you know, we're low trust with high acquisition costs to get a client. And our business models are mostly built to only serve people that have an asset base that's high enough to make the math work. And when you go through all that slicing, you end up with advisors basically focus on the top 10 to 15% of households. So when you start, start then trying to flip that around and say, how do we get around that? To me, there are a couple of ways that you break through that and that we're starting to see emerge in the industry. So number one is, when we start with a model that's built around the products, you only pursue the people who have the dollars available to buy your stuff. And so when we dissociate advice from products and we simply give advice for the sake of advice, so I broadly call this the category of fee for service financial advice. When you start with that, you know that could be hourly fees, ongoing subscription fees, or retainer fees to standalone financial plans. Pay me to do this analysis. When you break into fee for service and you dissociate from all of the products and the assets and the rest, even though some people may have product needs or asset investment needs and the rest, you widen the marketplace. So, you know, we founded a business to do this called XY Planning Network. We now have almost 1,300 advisory firms across the country, all of whom do these fee for service models, no products, no asset minimums, just Charge people for advice and let them pay for the advice they want. We particularly champion doing this on a monthly subscription basis, so you can work with an advisor in an ongoing relationship. But you don't have to buy products or move money or any of that. And sure enough, what we found going into that market from the advisor end, we're seeing immense growth from the advisors. That's how we've added almost thirteen hundred advisors in only six years. But we're seeing from the perspective of the advisors serving clients, you know, their businesses are growing tremendously because. All they have to do is go and say like, hey, I'll actually give you advice and just charge you for it. You don't have to buy anything or move anything. It's just like for a ton of Americans, like this is what I've been looking for. I just wanted to pay someone to answer my darn financial questions. And so what we're finding is when you change the model and you dissociate it from the from the investments and the products and you just let people pay for advice, more people show up to pay for advice. The second breakthrough that I think is coming with it as well and dovetails well to you know what you do, Josh, and what you're doing with this podcast. You know because one of the biggest blocking points is essentially advisors' ability to reach clients in mass and not have prohibitive costs in marketing and advertising in order to do it, and all the challenges that go with that because they're a low trust industry. You know, distributing advice through 401k channels to me creates some really unique opportunities. Right. Businesses and 401k plans naturally have a one-to-many scale. There tends, at least by and large, to be a pretty good trust level between employees from your firm and the firms. If I really didn't trust leadership, I usually don't work there. You know, we have a great fiduciary framework in place that generally ensures that 401k plans are even aligned to the plan participants and are created in their interests and all the things that further tend to bolster trust in the first place. And so, I see in particular a huge opportunity for expanding financial advice to a wider base through employer retirement plan and four hundred and one k channels, because trust levels tend to be higher, reach tends to be higher. We can we we can hit the ground running faster with one to many solutions that have a lower cost per client just to get them on board. Then we still have to figure out how to service them and deliver the value, but. Between the technology that's being built in employee wellness and just, frankly, what you can do from the economics of an advisory firm when you say, hey, I got a plan. It's got hundreds or thousands of participants. I just literally need Smart CFPs who can sit at a desk and take phone calls and video calls and just be awesome in giving advice to people. That's actually not horribly expensive from an advisory firm perspective to staff and deliver at a reasonable cost, you know. Some limitations is how cheap I can get, but way, way cheaper than what 98% of advice is in the marketplace today. If I can, you know, if I get to say, like, you know, I wave my magic wand, there's a ton of people who want advice, we just need to staff to it. Well, I can staff to it pretty easily. And in a 401k channel, I actually can kind of wave my magic wand to make a whole lot of people appear who have a lot of advice needs. So I think there really is a unique opportunity in the employer channel around doing this with the interesting asterisk from the employer end, like, oh, and by the way, not only is it just a good thing to do for the stewardship of your employees, you may decrease turnover, decrease absenteeism, have fewer problems with employee-manager relationships where they want raises that they probably didn't deserve, but they need it because they got financial problems at home, that if you solve their financial problems at home, they don't have these problems at work. Like. All sorts of ancillary benefits that come from it, which means broader financial wellness and employer channels can actually be a positive ROI for the firm and happens to align very well to the economics of just running an advisory business at scale serving the masses. And I think you're now starting to see even some of the big players move in that direction. You know, financial engines working with Edelman Financial and Power, working with personal capital. And, and more and more independent advisors that are starting to move this direction as well.
0: Right. So you bring up a good, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about with XY Planning Network. And I think every member has to, there's a number of things. One, obviously being adhered to the fiduciary standard, but yep. I think everybody has to be a CFP as well.
1: Yep, to um, to be publicly facing on our on our website and our find an advisor portal. We do have a subset of okay. members who are not CFP certificates yet, they're working towards it. And you know, we give them okay. scholarships on CFP exams and discounts on training programs and job opportunities for experience and other stuff. But yeah, anyone and, that can listed on the get, site when, and holds out as an XYPN member has to have their CFP certification done by the time they they go public on our website. Got it.
0: Okay. So you know, one of the things in talking about kind of the needs, and I think this is one of the challenges a lot of RIAs, especially that kind of focus up market or or with higher net worth clients, one of the things they struggle with is I, it just is an interesting kind of experience is generally, in a lot of cases, larger clients are easier to work with than, than smaller clients, their, their needs are, are less in some ways. But the scope of services as well for somebody that may have, you know, one or two or three or five million dollars is generally different than yep. you know somebody that 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 doesn't. So what are you seeing? Like I'm sure some of the XYPN members are working with some, you know, some high net worth or kind of ultra high net worth folks. Is it fair to say that 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 most of the clientele of the advisors in the network? may not fall into that kind of high net worth yep. category. And so if that's the case, what do the services look like for those types of folks? I mean, is it very heavy kind of asset management and, you know, traditional kind of, you know, what we see from a tax and a state, or is it something different because the yeah. needs of that target market are different?
1: It it's different. It's different. You know, when we look at at what's happening in XY Planning Network, and you know, we do a lot of internal benchmarking studies with our members from the XYPN just to understand like what's going on. You know, as as I view it, we're we're kind of birthing the movement of a new business model in the industry, and so just being the nerd that I am, I'm like. We're going to document this because I'm a, I'm a data nerd, research nerd at right. heart. So I'm like, we are doing right. internal benchmarking studies and someday, 20 years from now, people can look back at this research and see here's how this model evolved. So here's what we're finding and seeing. From the client end, it is a different kind of clientele. In part, because look, if you have a pile of assets, there's no shortage of advisors to work with in the first place. The advisors that grow an XY client network, like they're doing it in essence by pursuing non-asset clients in the first place that frankly... No other advisor will take unless you buy a product from them. Like if you're not ready to buy a product and hand over assets, it's hard to find anybody to work with you. And so that's who XY Planning Network is working with, which is actually like a bajillion Americans but people who get rejected from almost every other financial
0: well at least at least sev- at least 70% yeah, at least based 70% on the number of the
1: market that before
0: was. and and if 30% have more than 100,000 most RIAs are going to have call it a half a million or million or even higher kind of minimum so it's actually probably more than 70% oh yeah of American- it gets
1: to be about 85 to 90% from okay. the the market sizing math that would that we've done uh so people just, who want to date
0: to the prom but but can't find anybody to take them basically right
1: Right. And just you we talked to so many advisors in the network that grow from from the clients that essentially say, you know, you're the fourth advisor I've talked to. You know, I keep looking for fee-only advisors that will just give me advice, but the only ones I can find require half a million dollars, which is four hundred and ninety thousand dollars more than I have. I'm so glad you work with me. Now, now what we do find, because almost by definition, these are folks that don't necessarily have piles of assets, they pay from income. Now, it does mean we find by and large, at least so far, XYPLY Network is generally working with people of above average household incomes in the US because you still need some financial wherewithal to pay for the advice. And you know, while this model solves one part, which is we don't need someone who brings piles of money to buy the advice because we're dissociating the product part it's still hard to get a client and the costs of that are better when you work in with like the 90% that no one else is taking in our industry, but it is, it is still costly to get clients. And so we're generally seeing advisors work with, I'll call it above average clients, but not necessarily ultra high net worth unless they decide to specialize there. Now, in terms of the advice, the advice looks very different. And at the most basic level, the fundamental difference that changes in these kind of alternative females working with different clients, is the industry at the end of the day has what I would call a balance sheet centric approach to advice. You talk about your assets generally, how they're invested, where they're invested, tax status, the account types. Let me show you IRAs and Roth IRAs and five twenty nine plans and HSAs and all the different things I can do with your assets to move them around, and how are they invested? And how are they allocated? it's very focused on your balance sheet. When you work with frankly like the other 70 90% of the country,
0: not not your P&L, not your P&L basically.
1: Yeah, like it's it, not it, focused it, on your P&L. Yeah. And what you yeah. We're out of your balance sheet and we're into your household P&L. We're in your household income state. Cash in, cash out is the whole focus. And so some of that's budgeting. I know budgeting is a bad word. Some people, depending on your context. So I just broadly say, like, it's focused on your cash flow. What money's going in, what money's going out, is your you know is your upkeep greater than your outflows? <laughs> you know, which means we got some problems. Is your money aligned to what's actually important to you? Right. There's some very deep conversations that come from you know what's really important to you, or your you and your spouse, or your family. Like okay, let's look at where your money so goes. So some
0: life, so some life, some life planning. Call it goals planning, but life planning kind of. Yeah, in there yeah. I
1: mean, it, it's as well. Yeah, it's it's not to me like it's not necessarily goals planning. Goals is very distant. It's much more, I know, I'd call it just kind of like va- values alignment and and helping people recognize like you know you say your kids are really important and you really want to invest in their future, but you're not saving for their college. It's like, let's just talk about it. Like what's going on there? Well, you know,
0: there's a disconnect.
1: Yeah. It's like, just where, like no judgment. It's like, where's the money going? Oh, okay. So it's going really heavily into current kids activities. Like, okay, that's cool. But if you want to also invest in your kid's future, let's talk about like, how do we balance swim lessons, gymnastics, and karate against also supporting their college in the future? And like, let's just have, like, I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong. You set the values of what's the priority, but I can at least help you look at where are the dollars going. Does that actually line up with what you say is really important to you? And of course, because our lives change and income changes and expenses change and demands change, those numbers move all the time, which means meeting with an advisor on a regular basis actually becomes very helpful. The biggest essence to it is it's anchored around the p l more than the balance sheet. And so what am I earning, income, career decisions, you know, for a lot of people, the single biggest thing you can do to change their entire life trajectory and financial future, help them understand how to ask for a raise when they're actually deserving of one. And, you know, so there's a human
0: capital. There's a, you know, generally speaking, right, when people start working, you know, when you're young, you've got low financial capital, you've got high human capital. Yep. And that kind of relationship changes over time. Yeah, you know, it changes you over time at
1: some point when we're in the later of our career. Not a lot of earnings years left, but hopefully at least we right. built up some some financial savings. But in the early years, like, you know, helping you take $2,000 to invest into some designation that gets you a $1,000 raise next year is literally worth like 20x getting you to actually even put the $2,000 in your 401k plan or your Roth IRA in the first place. Like a $1,000 raise in your 20s, 20x the value of getting tax-free growth in a Roth account for the rest of your life. Like the math isn't even vaguely close to you. earnings raises 40 years of earnings power the compounding on top of that and then you get to save that money every year going forward for the next 39 years right. so you know everything around human capital and earning power which is, isn't even on the table of the discussion when we talk about traditional asset based retire, retirement planning because it sort of assumes money's already there you know where is our spending going you know cash flow budgeting alignment of spending to values and what's actually important to you then there's making good tax decisions, making good employee benefits decisions, buying the right level of insurance. That's enough, but not too much, but not too little. So much that goes on, and what happens with the cash-in, cash out for our households that getting better at that starts really dialing back so many other stresses. And there's a whole additional domain to this that comes with people who've got some existing debt. You know, one set of issues, if we've got credit card debt issues, another set of issues if we've got. Giant student loans, which have some different dynamics, but that's a whole additional financial stressor that requires some unique planning to engage with and address, but massively can change someone's life trajectory as well as, again, things like their focus and efficacy at work when they're not constantly stressed out about the debt overhang.
0: So this is an it's kind of just an interesting and and you know kind of the skill set and the focus and probably I would imagine that some of the technology tools as well that are are being utilized different for for this segment of the market and thinking about from a employer perspective a plan sponsor perspective I mean I think if you if if you you know if you ask most companies like they want to try to provide. I would say wellness or planning for their employees. They don't want to pay for it necessarily, or historically they may not have wanted to pay for it. And at the same time, I think some other issues, sometimes they're they're fearful. You know, when I started for a large brokerage firm, started my career, you know, it was funny, I would get phone calls as a rookie from advisors that were in other parts of the country yep. that managed 401k plans for big companies that had an office you know in Maryland where i was based and it was like hey if you'll just go meet with employees and provide some education you know you're not going to get paid for it but anything you get you know any clients they'll be yours and so it was really this kind of like distribution mechanism and as an advisor yeah, yeah. who didn't really have any clients at the
1: time it was
0: i was all for it like great this is yeah. a great way for me yeah, to I, get in front of maybe 30 40 or 50
1: people yeah i mean i, I was trained early in my career similarly like you know you you give free financial advice and 401k plans because you might get one or two of the biggest prospects at the company to, to work with you. And, you know, right. not a bad model if you're trying to go down the that road, but really to me, it gets back to the earlier discussion. Like, so at the end of the day, right, if we think about this just from a business perspective, like I'm delivering hours and hours of collective financial advice to a broad range of employees because I'm trying to get one or two of them as clients. Like, This is why we spend thousands of dollars per client to get a client because we have to go through these indirect kinds of tactics that are very time-consuming and labor-intensive because we're so struggling just to get the original client. And unfortunately, it means our heart's not necessarily actually in all the rest of the stuff that we're doing because it's a means to an end.
0: Right. But one of the things that was interesting that you had brought up that, you know, you and I had talked about kind of prior, so… You know, one of the things I appreciate about you is, is I mean, you were into all kinds of stuff. So, you know, speaking and writing yep. and podcasts and heading up planning for one of the largest RIAs in the country and building this, you know, co founding XY planning network. And you guys, and maybe you joint ventured with somebody else. I don't know if it's the same thing, but you've got this solution called Advice Pay, which is essentially a, a, Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to, to, to dumb this down too much, but it's kind of like Stripe, if you will, for financial planning or PayPal for finance. It's a way for advisors to essentially get paid advisory fees, not having to bill against assets or through some type of some type of product. Yeah. But advice pay, and one of the things you had mentioned is you're finding some advisors that are starting to use that to be able to go to companies to say, hey, you don't even have to be part of this equation but being able to offer advice to 401k participants that may not have assets to invest in a product or an account to generate fees. But now I can deliver advice to employees of a company without having to essentially custody or touch the assets within yep. the plan and using Advice Pay as a platform to kind of enable yeah. the you know, the payment for those services. Is that fair? And maybe talk a little yeah. bit about kind of yeah. what that looks like. Cause that's a, that is, a that's a, a model that actually could bring planning to a lot of 401k participants that don't get, get access to it now.
1: Yeah. It's, it's been fascinating to see this evolve. So, so advice pays kind of gone through know, probably like four different stages. We, we uh, so I think you described well, like Advice Pay, and I'm one that just names my companies very literally. Like X Y Planning Network was to do financial planning for Gen X and Gen Y. Advice Pay is because we facilitate pay for advice. The purpose of Advice Pay is just to handle payments for financial advice. You know, there's a whole bunch of regulatory issues that crop up. You know, in our industry, if I've got direct access to someone's bank account to bill them. For advice fees, it means I have direct access to their bank account, which creates a whole bunch of what are called custody rules in our industry about who has access to the money and what protections do you have, and how are you ensuring no one steals the money, and how do we know that you're not going to steal the money? You know, if you can bill your clients on a regular basis, what's to stop you from changing their monthly fees from $100 a month to $10,000 a month? Bill them all on December 30th, and by January 3rd, when they get back and look at their bank account, you've disappeared with the million dollars of your client's money. All sorts of issues, and so we build Advice Pay to solve for all of that. Like. You can't change the fee unilaterally to steal your clients' money. A whole bunch of just basic consumer protocols comply with the industry. We built it originally, frankly, for XY Planning Network. You know, when, when our members started joining and doing these models where we charge people ongoing fees outside of you know no product sales, no assets, it's like, wait, you know, this is really cool and people are willing to pay, but you do this for a whole bunch of clients at once, and like you get buried, like literally you get buried in an avalanche of checks that show up in a massive envelopes every month. Like just the the administration of billing becomes... If you're going to get buried, checks aren't the worst thing. Not to the get worst thing, in, but, but it does slow down to the your efficiency point. of the business when they are right. not terribly large checks and you need them all to add up in order to make the business work. So we build advice right. pages just to automate that. Like automate advice fees, one-time fees, especially recurring fees so you can bill clients on an ongoing monthly basis. Where like, you know, In the working world, our whole lives are like, we get our paychecks every two to four weeks and we pay most of our bills on a monthly basis. And so just solving for, pay for financial advice on a monthly basis like every other bill that you have was a big thing that we found grew adoption for financial planning to the masses and X-Y-Plying Network, but it really needed technology to facilitate it. So version 1.0, we built advice pay for XY Planning network. Then a bunch of other advisory firms came along and said, you know, we're not actually an XY Planning network. We're not trying to bring advice sort of down, down market, if you will, like to the masses, we serve, you know, more affluent baby boomers, but we actually just want to do this with our retired clients as well. Like we also like the model for some of our retired clients. So we said, cool. So we, we separate advice payout. We made a version for other advisory firms to use with their clients. Then then large enterprises started showing up, particularly hybrid brokerage firms that do advice. I think and LPL, bro- did I read that? Yeah. So did I like read Zetera, LPL, I think LPL, was a-, a couple of the really big brokerage firms that said, "Hey, like we have this problem. We have it at scale because technically, if you're in a large firm like LPL, every advisor is under the LPL compliance umbrella, and LPL has to manage all the dollars that move through, which means." At LPL, like some poor soul or some giant, some whole department of poor souls get checks from all the clients of 17,000 advisors across the whole company and have to process a bajillion checks. And in our industry, as you know, Josh, like individual advisors are not allowed to hold checks for clients. It's deemed custody because you might do something improper with it. So anytime you get a check from a client, you have to overnight it. Well, when you have 17,000 advisors, and you could be taking in thousands of checks every month, and you're paying five, 10, 15, $20 to overnight it, depending on where you are. Like you could be writing six figure checks in postage. Right. Just, just right. to handle the payments. <laughs> Never mind yeah. all the people. Not to
0: mention the compliance, as, not to mention the compliance, compliance nightmare. Compliance, processing
1: the checks and matching them up to the client, yeah. the bill, the invoice, was the plan delivered? How do we reconcile, remit back to the correct advisor across the mall? So, so version 3.0 and what we've been spending a ton of time on advice pay over the past year is solving all of that for enterprises, which we've largely solved, which is why we have big firms like LPL, Citera and a number of others that are onboarding right now. So we're seeing advice grow there. The new channel now that we're just starting to get pickup on, Satera actually did a version of this with their 401k advisors. And we're now getting other advisors coming along doing it as well. They're saying, look, I've always wanted to do advice for the plan participants. And I even have like a team to help deliver the advice. Like we got a centralized team. We can answer the phone. We can give them advice. We can systematize it a bit. I don't have a way to get the money. Like the plan sponsor would like to pay, but just we haven't convinced them to pay because across all the employees, it kind of adds up to a lot. I'm limited into my ability to build a 401k plan directly because of all of the rules about exactly what you can build from a 401k plan and not. And the broader the financial advice gets, the harder it is legally to actually be able to build a 401k plan. But they had no way to to bill individual participants at scale. You know, I knew one advisory firm that actually did this with significant size, they build plan participants. It was like $150 a quarter because they couldn't even do it on a monthly basis. It was too many checks. And the truth was they had never actually done a follow-up invoice for anybody in five years of this program because they figured out any level of commi- of collections for the people who didn't pay their invoices, it cost them more to chase the bill down than it did to <laughs> just walk away from it. So like something like That's 10 or 15% crazy. of their people just don't pay. And they don't even try to follow up on it because it wasn't cost effective to even pursue the money. They just base it's like a pay on faith system. And they just assume losses and slippage. And so what we're seeing now are a wave of 401k providers saying, I actually want to implement advice pay in our 401k offering. So we'll give either, you know we'll we'll give plan participants the option or may even mandate it, most of them do as an option, to pay a very moderate monthly fee, because it's easier to do this monthly, we will give them the option to pay a very moderate monthly fee to have access to our financial advisors. It is, in essence, a version of the prepaid legal model, right, where a mass of participants should have a very small price per person every month or every quarter, every year, because you know, across all the people, it will average out. Some years they don't have many problems, some years they have more, Just sort of, you know, if you got enough people, these things average out reasonably well. That's the whole foundation of prepaid legal services. They're essentially doing the same thing with financial advice and they're using Advice Pay to facilitate it because we automate the whole payment pro like billing, collection, reminder notices if the payments don't come in. Although, if you actually just build a direct payment fee to their credit card or bank account, like there's almost no payment fails because you've automated it to a place that can collect the money. And so We're now finding this is like the fourth version of advice pay. Like it started for XYPN, then firms using it for retirees, then hybrid broker dealers and enterprises using it to expand advice at scale. And now we're seeing it come into the 401k channel and we're starting to build some of the additional tools and technology because obviously... Onboarding a whole a 401k plan is a different process than an advisor getting one client at a time. And so we're we're building out some of those dealing
0: with like the batch, you know. like the, the batch onboarding. Yeah, you know, b- of, batching
1: of you know, onboarding, batching of agreements. We have integrations to contracting and document management systems. So you can do advisory agreements in mass for participants. So we're building all those pieces out to be able to do it. But you know, we've seen how this plays out in the other three versions. Already, so I kind of know what happens from here. Which is, once it gets really easy to handle the payments and get paid, advisors tend to step up and give more advice. Like once I can get paid,
0: paid. it's nice to get it's nice to get paid for what it's uh, nice to get paid for for what for what you do.
1: Yeah, and the challenge is at the end of the day, right? Like if you want to do this for a high volume of people paying a fairly modest amount, just you know, I think we sometimes underestimated the sheer problems that come from, I just don't have an efficient way to actually get paid for this. Like it's just, it's a billing, pr- it's literally just a billing problem, but it's a big one. If you want to do this for hundreds of plan participants or thousands of plan participants at once. And so once you automate that, now it just comes down to, okay, if you have hundreds at once, can you put a person in a room with a phone and a video webcam? who's competent to give advice and help these people? And the answer is, well, actually, yeah, that's not that hard to solve for in our industry.
0: You know, it's interesting too, that it, it potentially solves a number of issues. Obviously, if a, plan sponsor, plan fiduciary, they're going to have to vet, you know, it's still pretty uncommon for advisors, though it's increasing, but to provide, you know, it's kind of table stakes in the retirement industry to provide plan level fiduciary advice as an ERISA 338 or 321, where you're consulting to the plan. It's still, I would say, the minority of advisors that actually will sign on and be a fiduciary to give advice to plan participants. A lot will say, hey, we're not going to give advice, but we'll give education or whatnot. Obviously, getting compensated, you're, you're, it's going to well, Yeah, I mean, I, a we didn't have a lot but- of
1: interest to go beyond that, right? Just sort of at the end of the day, like, so let me get this straight. You'll pay me to give the plan participants advice and you'll also pay me to not give the plan participants advice. So- right. Why, again, would I give the plan participants advice? Like, I want to be nice. I got to be competitive in the marketplace. If other people are giving a little, I got to give a little. But like, you know, most advisory firms didn't come to that as a, excited for growth and to deliver more advice. Right. Because they didn't have a good way to get paid for it. And, and, and this also and you, create- and you do.
0: It also creates, too, the possibility as well as some continuity. If you're giving access to advice now and people and you have turnover within companies, which at times you do, and somebody then leaves, you know, they, they, this may provide access to, they'll be working with a fiduciary advisor, whether that advisor is able to kind of take on, you know, that client on an ongoing basis. Maybe they have assets now and maybe that goes into a more of a traditional model or, you know, maybe there's a way to at least create some kind of continuity as somebody, as somebody leaves. So that there's definitely some interesting elements to that and being able, you know, at the end of the day, when money's locked inside a 401k plan and advisors can't get paid on it, like you said, that they're not going to give much advice, but if you can create a mechanism where there can be a reasonable level of compensation for a scope of services, and there's a technology w- a way to kind of technologically deliver that, that's going to create opportunities for additional advice. I, I want to transition and I want to ask you a- a- about something that I-, I find really fascinating and then we can wrap up. But, you know, the retirement industry yep. is become, just with the Pension Protection Act, You know, 15 years ago or so, and kind of the the Congress green lighting, if you will, things like automatic enrollment, automatic escalation. I would argue that the retirement industry has harnessed the power of behavioral finance probably better than the traditional private client side with things like automatic enrollment and automatic escalation. This idea of a qualified default investment alternative or a QDIA being a target date fund. And so we've seen, because 401k plans, because they get funded every pay period are just a beautiful distribution model for mutual fund companies. And target date funds have captured so much of the assets within plans. And the traditional target date fund, just the model and kind of the conventional wisdom is this idea of a target date fund that, you know, when you've got high human capital and low financial capital, you can take on more, a lot more risk. And so it starts at a really high equity sleeve. And then as you get older and as your financial capital grows, but your human capital goes down, right, that the target date fund ratchets down and becomes more conservative over time until kind of the target date. You and Wade Fowle, who's a, a PhD and a researcher around retirement income, you guys wrote a white paper a number of years ago called Reducing Retirement Risk with a Rising Equity Glide Path. And I think it it factored in some things like sequence of return risk, but this idea that actually for many investors, especially to solve not the you know, target date funds that that become less more conservative over time deal with what I would call volatility risk, but they may not deal with longevity risk. And so some of the research you did was this idea that a rising equity glide path kind of after retirement. Had a positive impact on actually longevity risk. Could you talk a little bit about that? And and that is that's kind of like sacrilege in the yes. uh, the retirement industry.
1: Yes, understood it. I I know it is. We got a lot of feedback when we when we published that research a couple of years ago. So so here here is the essence of it. It this really is a story about what happens. Once you start taking distributions out of a retirement portfolio, so specifically like I got a pool of dollars, I'm no longer saving and putting money in, I'm drawing money out. So, you know, ultimately is overgeneralizing a little. Like, there's two things that determine whether my withdrawals from my portfolio actually make it to the end of my retirement time horizon. Number one is I just I need a certain level of returns and growth. In order to make it work. Now, obviously, the higher I withdraw, the more growth I need, the lower I withdraw, the less growth that I need. But I need some level of growth, particularly because stuff gets more expensive over time, otherwise known as inflation. So I need some level of growth to deal with the fact that I got a long time horizon and stuff's going to get more expensive over time. So I take a moderate growth rate and I and I invest in a moderate growth portfolio, at least classically in our industry, you know, 50 or 60% in stocks, something to that effect. And and as you noted, the idea in part is like, as time goes on, my time horizon gets shorter. I don't need as much growthy stuff anymore, so I can get more conservative. And that risk level tends to dial down as we get older. Now, the problem is that's only one of the two factors that drives the outcome. One is, do I get the growth that I need over my time horizon? Shorter the time horizon, less growth I may need. The second is the sequence by which the returns occur in the first place. Because if I'm taking ongoing withdrawals and I get a wonderful long-term growth rate, but I get it by having like 10 to 15 years of horrible returns, like I retire in the Great Depression or the 1970s or something, I can have a wonderful 30-year growth rate. Unfortunately, I'm flat broke after the first 10, so it doesn't matter how good the years are, right? If I retire in the late 1960s, the 30-year growth rate from 1969 to 1999 was amazing. Like, you got 11.5% on a balanced portfolio for 30 years. Actual historical numbers, 11.5% on a balanced portfolio for 30 years from 1969 to 1999. Unfortunately, you did that by having like 10 years of zero and negative returns followed by 20 years of mid-teens when we got the huge boom of the 1980s and 1990s. So if and you're interest just,
0: rates falling as well, kind of right. during that time and whatnot, yeah. But. So
1: if you're just chugging along, taking 5 or 6% a year, over 30 years, this is glorious. Unfortunately, you're broke in the first 10 because you got the wrong sequence.
0: Which you and have no so, control, which you ha- obviously have, unlike planning where you can control certain things, you right, have no, no I, control over the sequence of return. I can't
1: control the sequence. Now, if the sequence goes the other way, if things are really good early on, your your growth so outpaces your spending that you actually get so far ahead with compounding. You, you it doesn't even matter how bad it is in your later years because you get so far ahead. So there's like a, there's a good sequence and a bad sequence. But that's largely the point. That means like, look, if I retire in 1969 and start drawing like 6 or 7% a year, on average, it runs 30 years. In real life, I'm flat broken less than 10. And if I had the exact same returns from 69 to 99, but I ran them in reverse, so I got like the good 1990s and 80s at the beginning and the bad 1970s at the end instead of being broke in 10 years, you die with eight times your original wealth left over on top of lifetime spending. So these like ludicrously large return, like same, same average return, just the difference between living from 69 to 99 or 99 to 69 is the difference between flat broke before you make it to the end of retirement and leaving your kids octuple your original nest egg. Oh, left over on the side. So, when you think about it in these terms where this sequence matters, sort of overgeneralizing a little, like this basically goes one of two ways like markets go up and then down, or they go down and then up, right? We, we know they kind of go up, down, up, down, up, down over time, a little more up than down, which is why they tend to grow over the long term. But we don't know if it's going to be an up, down sequence or a down, up sequence. So, if you think about the traditional approach now of, of glide paths, we get more conservatives as we go. So, if I get the sequence, up, down, the good sequence, it doesn't actually matter. Like I get so far ahead, the truth is it doesn't even matter whether I was overweight or underweight in my later years, I'm going to be fine. But if I get a bad sequence, let's say like I retire in the late 1960s. So the first half of my retirement, when all the bad stuff happens, I own a lot of equities and I get clobbered. Then when the finally, the 1980s show up in the second half of my retirement, it's like, thank goodness, finally time for the good returns. Uh, doesn't matter because I got rid of most of my equity. So you bear all the pain in the bad years and lose all the benefit of the recovery that eventually comes. So basically, in the good sequence, the traditional approach doesn't help you. And in the bad sequence, you bear all the pain on the recovery and fail faster, which basically means heads it doesn't help and tails you lose worse, which is not a good trade-off. So if I now turn this around, I say, well, what if we do it the other way? What if I get conservative at the beginning requirement and aggressive later? So if I get a good sequence, it turns out it doesn't matter. Like I just die with a less large extra inheritance. If you get far enough ahead in the early years, frankly, you can go like 100% in equities. You're like, your time horizon at the end isn't isn't long enough for anything to go that badly <laughs> because you're so far ahead. But if I get the bad sequence, like I retire in the 70s, well, if I get the bad returns early on, it doesn't matter because I was more conservative early on. And when the recovery I less comes e- later, I had
0: less equity risk exposure, so right. I was preserving capital early on.
1: And then when the recovery comes, I'm dialing up my risk exposure and I participate in the recovery. So now we get the heads I win, tails I wasn't losing anyways. And so what we found in this research as we put it out is that when you look at how often you actually fail across all the different sequences- the traditional approach actually makes your success rates worse because it makes bad sequences worse and it doesn't help in good ones. Whereas the rising equity glide path improves outcomes because it saves you in the bad sequences and the good ones actually still don't matter.
0: So this is kind of fascinating when you think about it. And again, it, it, it flies in the face of kind of the conventional wisdom. So one, the question I have is, in light of this, it sounds like you got a lot of feedback, Have you seen any, whether it be the development of products or solutions or advice, have you seen anybody with the courage to actually construct portfolios in the way that you're talking about?
1: We've seen some advisory firms start doing this on an individual basis with clients. Now, in the advisory firm context, we tend to, like, you explain it a little bit differently to people. Because, you know, if I say, like hey, we're going to get you more conservative early on and buy a bunch of stocks in your later years, right? It's so counterintuitive. People are like, whoa, whoa, what? like what? And even if we point out, just to be clear, we're not talking about like, take your 80-year-olds to 90% in equities. This can be as simple as if someone was comfortable with a balanced portfolio of 60-40, dial them down to 30% in stocks early on and then drift them back to the 60 they were going to own in the first place. Like we we don't have to over-risk people. The point is just we deliberately under the them in the first part of retirement. But the other way to view this, so rather than thinking about it in terms of your stocks, you can think about it in terms of your bonds, right? 100 minus stocks equals bonds anyways in the <laughs> traditional asset allocation. So if you think about this in bonds, here's how it goes. In the early part of your retirement, when you're most exposed to sequence risk, we're going to build up some extra bonds as a reserve. And then in the first part of retirement, we're going to spend down your bond reserve to get you back to what you were originally so you can envision like we're going to make you a little safety tent out of bonds you're going to go hide inside of your bond tent for the first 10 years and you're going to spend the bond tent down from around you and 10 years in either things are good and your tent is gone but now you're cruising well or things were horrible your bond tent sheltered you and now that you're out of your tent you can go and participate in the growth engine again so if i build up an extra bond reserve and then i spend down the extra bond reserve my bond allocation starts out higher and gets lower, which means my stock allocation starts out lower and gets higher. So we're doing it, but you know, in practice for people, it's, it it connects a little bit more intuitively to say, look, we're just building up an extra reserve of bonds and fixed income, and then we're going to whittle it down once you don't need it.
0: That you're going to spin down first, basically, effectively, and by that, that you're going to synthesize by that getting to an equity right, an allocation.
1: That you, you, know, that you would have been at in that the first place. you would have place. been at
0: at the beginning. That,
1: right, like I'm not going to over-risk you relative to what you're comfortable with, but take what your baseline would have been. Right. Carve out a portion of the stocks to buy extra bonds as a reserve, build your bond safety tent, hide in your tent for the first 10 years, whittle down your tent as you go. And at the end of the 10 years... You're now out of your tent and either things have gone well and everything's okay or things have gone badly and you took shelter with safety and now you're ready for the growth engine yeah. to get up.
0: And if it went well, you're going to have a little bit less money than you would have otherwise, but it's not going to matter because you're still going to have plenty. Right. But you if it like, went bad-
1: Hey, the markets have gone amazing. I'm really sorry. As a result of this strategy, you might only leave your kids like three times your retirement nest right. egg when you might have always left them four times your retirement nest egg, but you avoided going broke.
0: Right you and, avoided moving in with them and then them going broke because they had to take right. care of you as well.
1: And, and to me I mean the whole essence of risk management at the end of the day is I give up some of the upside and good scenarios to protect right. the horrible ones. The which is like literally exactly what this does. Yeah.
0: That's 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 great insight and fascinating research. So, you know as we we wrap up, I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions and then we can wrap. But sure. One of the questions I like to ask is, how do you think, or ask all guests, is how do you think, in, in your case, retirement and financial planning is going to change or evolve over the next five to 10 years? What do you think the next five to 10 years like you know, in the industry and ultimately for clients is going to look like?
1: So I, I think the biggest shift that's happening just broadly industry-wide is we're in this meta shift to the whole industry away from... Financial advice is a way to gather assets and sell products into a world where we actually give advice for the sake of advice and the value that gets created by advice. And there's a whole lot of really important secondary effects that come with that shift that you're going to see play out over the next decade. Advice gets more fiduciary because the whole, like, once you're only judging advice for advice's sake, like, we have always only ever regulated that on a fiduciary basis. More fiduciary advice leads to. You know, fewer trust issues, higher quality advice, it leads to advisors investing more in their education and their quality to deliver better advice. So we're seeing like accelerating growth in CFP certification, advanced designations like AIF, all focus on how do we get better advice. It expands the market of who gets access to advice because as we talked about earlier, like when advice is narrowed down to people who can allocate assets or buy a product, it's actually very limiting as to who has disposable dollars available and money in motion to do that. When you just let people buy advice for the sake of advice, you expand the market of who can participate in advice in the first place. That opportunity creates all sorts of, of scenarios where we can do this in new channels we haven't done historically. And To me, the, the opportunity for advice in the 401k channel is a particularly powerful one. You live in a world of scale. Most advisors don't. You have broad access to help people. Most advisors don't. They're marketing the clients one at a time. I think we're still learning the the economics of how poor financial wellness adversely impact companies, and how good financial wellness creates an ROI for companies. You know, we're now starting to learn where to look on this. It's things like turnover rates, absenteeism, job satisfaction is expressed by money satisfaction, and so as we learn those, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm not an I'm not an altruist. I'm sort of a pragmatist, like. It's going to grow because advice actually gets people to better outcomes. And when there's an economic interest to make this work, we figure out how to do it. So when we solve for payment systems, more people do advice. When businesses see that facilitating advice gives them better business outcomes, they put more dollars, they bring more dollars to the table to figure out how to make this happen. And when you get the alignment of, you know, business provider interests and buyer interests, you see a lot of growth in (laughs) in advice happening. So I see it as a particularly unique channel there, but it ultimately comes down to just we're in this shift from advice for the sake of product sales and asset gathering into advice for the sake of advice. And the fundamental alignment that creates around quality advice, better advice, more accountable advice, and seeking new opportunities to bring advice to the marketplace, I think creates really powerful value for both the people in need of advice the people who provide advice and the, the stakeholders who can benefit from better financial advice being delivered in the first place. And I'll give a shout out for all, all the technology providers who then can help facilitate that and make it happen. Because obviously, advice, particularly in a 401k channel, is still more of a scale business than traditional advice has historically been, which I don't think means technology replaces the human advisors. Because, like, if I could solve all my problems with technology alone, like, I'd solve the world's obesity problem. I just make a website I would say eat less, exercise more. <laughs> like, it takes more than that. You know, if technology alone solved it, there would be no personal trainers. We just all watch YouTube videos on how to use exercise equipment. But, like, it takes more than that. There's something very powerful in a human to human connection. But human to humans augmented by technology just works better and more efficiently. And right. so, I, I think we're already beginning to see. New forms of technology providers in the fintech space step up to figure out how to how to solve and support this, and a wave of advice into the 401k world. should bring a wave of technology into it to help make it more efficient to do as well. I, I think our advice pay offering maybe wound up playing a small part of that, but you know, billing is just one part of the equation to solve and doing this efficiently.
0: And traditionally, fintech has, it's interesting, most of the spin has been on more of the retail solutions, the, the 401k industry, quite frankly, you know, as an advisor, we're lagging way behind when it comes yep. to technology tools. So last question, and, and you may have just kind of shared it, but what would be your single best piece of advice to make Arista Fiduciary smarter? That's what this, this whole podcast is about. Like, what would you, to a plan sponsor to an employer, what would be your single best piece of advice to kind of make them smarter as they look to meet the needs of their people?
1: So I to me it just comes down to a, to a few core elements, you know, investing in yourself and your expertise to make sure you 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 know what you need to know to make good decisions in the first place, finding good experts that you can rely on to help support those decisions. You know, no no one learns everything there is to learn all by themselves, right? You know, good, good people rely on experts and figure out how to vet the right experts that bring bring the requisite expertise to the table and just really understanding the people that you serve and what they need in the first place, right? You know, again, I, I, I'm I, a really strong advocate for advice and the power of advice, but I don't pound the table for it just saying, like, everybody should buy advice because I happen to believe it's a good thing for everybody to do, like, you know, businesses and people have to find their own ROI and why this benefits them. I think there's a unique opportunity in the employer space and for plan sponsor fiduciaries to say, hey, what would it look like in my corporate environment if I got to show how this thing that we do in HR and plan benefits is not a cost to the business to be managed, it's a net positive ROI that we're contributing to the business. So I know for so many that live in the HR realm, everything you do is a cost to be controlled and managed. Everything is like you bear all the burden of the cost and you don't get any of the credit for the benefit. Right. Right. This, to me, becomes a really unique area where you can take challenging business metrics like absenteeism and turnover and turn them into something that says, here's what I'm bringing to the table as the plan sponsor fiduciary. We're not just managing costs. We're contributing to the net positive good of the business because we found a way to facilitate financial wellness of employees that are going to turn down these key business-wide HR metrics in a positive manner. and you know, that starts with just really understanding for your employee base, where are their challenges and issues in the first place? You know, maybe that's debt issues. Maybe if you've got young employees, it's a lot of student loan issues. Maybe there's different dynamics where you wherever you are. Some places it's all about housing issues. Whatever it is, understanding what their pain points are and trying to facilitate the advice and the wellness around that. And watching the positive effects that it has on the business and understanding, hopefully, by listening to this, and I know, Josh, the kind of research that you put out, figuring out what the metrics are so that you can prove up the line that what you're doing is not just a cost to be managed, but a net positive to the company. That's great. When you get the metrics, you can prove your point and and make your case.
0: That's awesome. Well, where can uh, where can people go to connect with you or follow what you're up to? We'll put all of it in the show notes, but what's the best way for people to...
1: Kitsis.com is the best way to track us down. That's just you know my name, Michael Kitsis. We've launched the blog at Kitsis.com. That's got you know our information, our research there. If people want to go look more on Rising Equity Glide Pass, we've got some connections out to places like XYPlying Network and AdvicePay, although you can go there directly, XYPlyNetwork.com, AdvicePay.com. I'm a big fan of keeping it simple and naming what it is. But I hope that's helpful for all your listeners just thinking about how do they move forward and what are the opportunities from here?
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure all the listeners will. learn a ton as well. So thank you. It's been a lot of fun and I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with Michael Kitsis. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Have a better understanding about financial planning and financial wellness in the workplace. And it helped make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or you'd like to connect and learn more, please go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary U Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only, and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk, and unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.